Hello, you're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, and I'm here as always with David Scott. Pleasure to be back, Paul. Thank you. And our guest on this special edition where we're going to look at the GDP figures, uh, house prices, a few other issues, is the Federal Treasurer, Scott Morrison. Treasurer, welcome back on the show. G'day, Paul. G'day, David. I hope you boys have got yourself a ute. Uh, I'm planning to buy one uh, at some point. Uh, I think, uh, you know, the kids would uh, love for me to have one. But uh, utes have been um, uh, a big theme for you this week, uh, Treasurer, with uh, this ute-driven growth that you've been talking about. Well, it did appear in, in so many the elements of this month's of a quarter's national accounts, whether it was on the build-up of inventories or it was the capital imports or indeed what we're seeing in non-mining investment. We saw it um, as being a recurring feature. So... You know, when I was studying economics, it was always the cranes on the skyline, um, which was the sort of image of, of, a, of an economy that was really surging ahead. And I think that's still true today. But uh, equally, uh, when you're looking out in regional Australia or suburban Australia and things like that, I think you know, seeing our trades doing well and being busy and uh, the more utes you see on the road, um, I think it is an indicator that things are on the move. So headline numbers, very, very good. Um, you know, 3.1% growth for the year. Um, and, you know, part of what you've been saying, you know, at the top of the OECD in terms of um, annualised growth rates. Um, but look, unemployment has been ticking up. Uh, wages growth remains low. Um, there'll be a lot of people out there who feel don't feel like things are growing at like anywhere near 3% for them. Uh, what's going on? Well, I think that is true for some, but I, it is increasingly true for others that they are seeing improvements. I mean, we saw the average compensation uh, per employee in this most recent quarter uh, tick up, as it had in the previous quarter, and a greater share of that compensation of employees uh, figure that well over 5% growth. Um, what we're seeing is a greater proportion of that is coming, not just uh, from how many people are employed, which has been at record levels, but also by seeing an improvement in the overall compensation per employee. And that's a good thing. Um, the governor himself has said that what we've seen on, on wage movements is troughed. Uh, so that's behind us, and, and he's seeing, like we are, uh, the, the position on wages being improving. Now, we're not saying it's rocketing or racing or anything like that, but the labour market has certainly been tightening, and we've seen that not only here but in other Western economies. So I think the outlook on that side is positive. Nothing has changed there. I think these, these figures are very much backed in the outlook that is contained in this year's budget. I think there's a, a consensus around that. And uh, and we'll see how much how things are in the final June quarter in terms of how things play out in 1718. Um, on unemployment, I mean I mean it's it's hard to say that the employment picture is not optimistic given, you know, 415,000 jobs created in, in one year. It's a record. Um, it is slowing at the moment though. Sorry. It is definitely slowing at the well, moment. Well, it was never though. going to remain at that record pace. I mean, you know, the economy can only sprint along at that at that pace for so long. Um, and that that has brought us into a tighter labour market, and that's when you, you're likely to see the normal rules of the supply and demand apply. I um, mean, it applies in the housing market, applies in the labour market, and applies in the widget market. And uh, I think that's what we'll see happen in the labour market. Uh, we're very pleased about just how many people have got jobs in this economy, and now we're looking forward to them all, with productivity being the basis for wage uh, improvements, uh, starting to flow through. So, look, one of the issues here is that the rate of immigration. Uh, you've got a unique perspective on this. Um, having spent time as immigration minister um, and now looking at Treasury, looking across the economy and obviously factoring in mm. levels of Im immigration into how that affects final demand, but also the skills mix in the economy, et cetera, right? Now, with around about 180,000, I think 190,000 is our current intake. Is the permanent uh, cap is 190. So 
with that rate of growth, that's inevitably going to dilute the impact of the overall economic growth rate on the existing population, right? So what we're Well, you're making an assumption that population growth is running higher than economic growth, which it's not. Well, in line with uh, economic growth. Well, no, it's actually growth. higher. <laughs> population growth is running at about 1.6%. And, uh, and at best, it can get up to about 1.8, but around about 1.6, and you've got the economy growing through the year at over 3%. Um, so per capita growth is growing at 1.5% year on year. Well, at, well, per capita growth is the point. So it, it, means the, that, it means that there's more growth occurring per head of population, and that's a, that's a good thing. But let's, let's break down the immigration figures themselves. I mean, if you've got 10 extra people in the country, you know, to, to simplify it, uh, you've got four, just over four, in fact, that are temporary migrants. So they're here as students or they're here as uh, working holiday making visas. They could be here as uh, temporary skilled visa holders. And um, so that's uh, just over four. You've got almost four, which is natural increase. And you've got two who are on a permanent visa. So the permanent migration program is not what's driving population growth. And when you look at what's happening with temporary migration, it's actually in those first couple of um, categories that I've mentioned. Now, one thing about that category is they're younger. They're much younger. They're typically under about 25. Now, we have an aging population. And with a migration program, which has a front end driving it, which is younger people, that means more people going into the working age population for longer which is a long-term benefit for growth in the economy. So I think we need to understand when we're talking about immigration, not only its size, but its composition. Now, the composition of your program can mean any number's a good number or a bad number. But if your composition is focused on skills, if it's of the right sort of demographic, if it's actually building the capability of your economy, then it's a plus. Are you concerned that this, there seems to be this particular issue uh, in, in um, the, the technology sector, which I know you were very interested in, um, keeps talking about, which is this dearth of technology skills, that A, there's just not enough depth in the um, technology industry here to retain people. So the young people might come in, but eventually if they're very good at their job, they will be snapped up by a Singapore or a London or well, I think that, that Well, that's why you have competitive tax rates. That's why you don't have a personal income tax system. Um, which forces people uh, to Singapore or other parts of the region. And I think you have, a, have to have not just a, a business tax system, but a personal tax system, which I think understands the mobility of talent. And when you've got sectors, particularly in the, you know, not just the financial technology sector, but um, the innovation science research uh, field more broadly, uh, you want people, I mean, we already are attractive for obvious um, living standards and, and the quality of our environment and the wonderful place Australia, of course, is to live. But you know, you've got to go above and beyond that. You can't be lazy and just relaxing on and relying on those natural physical attributes of the country. So keeping personal taxes, I think, uh, uh, competitive is an important part of that. But the migration system also have to, has to understand it. Uh, I mean, we, we run a program which is selective. It's not discriminatory. There's a difference. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't care what your race is, your religion is, what, what nationality you come from, it, and, and it shouldn't. Um, and, it, it, and, it, and it won't. Uh, under under a term of government, but um, it is deliberately selective to be attracting people with skills that we need, and uh, and who come to make a contribution, not take one. 
Are you concerned with the um, what a lot of economists have called out? Uh, the RBA talks about it um, uh, in its monthly statements about the outlook for household consumption being um, a risk to the economy. Uh, household consumption only added 0.2 percentage points of the one percent uh, that we got. Um, in the last quarter. Um, obviously, this tightness around um, this concern around households um, goes back to what I was talking about earlier, that, which is this thing that not everybody's feeling like 3% yeah, you've is... You've got to be careful not to read too much into one quarter's data. I mean, the previous quarter's data had um, consumption running at 1%. In the quarter before that, it was at half percent. This quarter was at 0.3%. Um, and there's been revisions where it said it was 0.1 and then it ended up being 0.5. So, look, I think you've got to be but, careful. But if the RBA is, is, is saying that household consumption is, is a, a... Well, the household the consumption outlook. figures, um, not just in this quarter, but you know, going back over a number of years now, um, that's an area we've, we would have described it being you know, at a modest rate of growth if you look at... Over, you know, it's about 2.9% or thereabouts uh, through the year. And we'd obviously like to see that a bit higher. And that's why I think you had seen the RBA keep um, cash rates you know, pretty much where they are. I mean, unless we're seeing unemployment coming um, down to its natural rate uh, or of full employment, or if you, you know, you're seeing inflation getting back well into the target band, then I think the banks made themselves pretty clear about where they see rates going forward. Uh, but when it comes to these issues of consumption, this is why... People getting in jobs is a good thing. If you've got a job, you've obviously got more income and, and you can spend it. Uh, secondly, though, uh, if people have lower rates of tax and personal tax system is actually allowing you to keep more of what you earn, then that's also good for consumption. And the personal tax plan I, I set out in the budget, we responsibly ensured that the first phase of that was actually targeted in what is a, a pretty high consumption part of the uh, of the economy with on low to middle income earners. So it's there to provide genuine relief to people and, uh, who are feeling the most stress, I would say. Um, but it also has a very good economic um, objective in, in, in providing a bit of an, a, a, an underpinning to consumption. So one of the other uh, elements to this is the high levels of um, uh, household debt, right? Um, and that has been driven by this issue at the housing market, which is now starting to roll over. Dave, um, some of the data has, has suggested that some of this, well, it's, it's been a you know, pullback in Sydney, but it uh, looks like it might be picking up pace a little bit. Yeah, well, you go off the uh, auction clearance rates that were released today. They were quite uh, quite bad uh, compared to what we've seen in previous years, below 50% for the first time outside of a holiday period since, I think, 2012. Uh, that tends to go and focus on uh, on price declines that are accelerating, not just falling. Um, obviously, you see things like what's going on with investor credit is uh, is falling. Uh, last month's figures that came out, uh, a billion dollar decline in the value of uh, investor loans that went out. Housing credit slowing down. Uh, Melbourne as well. Obviously, prices are falling there. Auction clearance rates are falling there. We're talking about two cities that have 40% of Sydney's uh, Australia's housing stock and 60% of the housing wealth. So obviously, uh, that's some things that are probably going to be weighing on some households' minds at present. Well, we were having, um, about a year ago, we had a house price growth running in Sydney at about 18%. And we'd had a, a very strong surge in prices, particularly over about the last three or four years. And if you go back over 10 years, I mean, the figures, even with the... Um, with the, the uh, deceleration that you've seen, and, and in some cases, actually, in some parts of the city, the prices have fallen. I mean, that's still running at about six, uh, just over six percent over, over the, 
that period of time over 10 years on average. So, you know, over time and through the cycle, I mean, I don't think anyone's complaining that Sydney house prices or, or Melbourne house prices, for that matter, have, haven't performed well. And let's not forget, people don't buy and sell houses that they live in every three months based on the movement in the, you know, the, the, core, the core data that you see come through. I mean, they're not traded like that. I mean, people would have bought their house 10 years ago or five years ago, and they would have obviously seen it appreciate and, um, and you know, they would have seen it, it, it taper off. Now, at 18% growth, there were obviously quite real concerns about how hot that market was getting. Now, in that market, or in Melbourne, there was an obvious misimbalance between supply and demand that had gone on for some considerable period of time, and that had been exacerbated by some pretty easy credit in the sector. And when we saw uh, interest-only loans, for example, particularly for um, getting over above 40%, and in one case above 50% of new loans, that wasn't at a healthy level. When you had investor credit growth running at over 10%, that wasn't healthy. Uh, and APRA took quite sensible and reasonable steps, I think, to, um, to condition if you like that enthusiasm on credit at that end of the market. And since then, we have seen quite an adjustment take place. Now, we know these markets, you know, they work in cycles, but over time, they, the trend is positive. Um, I think we're seeing a bit of that at the moment as a government, and I know all the other the regulators that are part of the, the group of uh, financial regulators that we have, we're keeping a close eye on this. But the, the, the virtue of the tools that have been used by the regulators, I think, shouldn't be understated. I mean, these are highly flexible rules. They can be changed in an afternoon. You change negative gearing, capital gains tax, strap yourself in because you're in for a roller coaster ride that's only going in one direction. Are, have you been surprised by the impact that... So there was the changes to, the, to, to APRA's regulations, et cetera, and they um, removed the restrictions on the 10%. Um, yeah, they've done that just recently, but the interest-only ones have remained. Yeah, um, but as we've gone through this Royal Commission process and all of the scrutiny that there's been on the banks, um, there has been an apparent further tightening. Um, so this is anecdotal, but just yeah, I think it's say, more perceived than actual because of the connection to the Royal Commission. But I mean, there has been a tightening in the credit standards now for some time, not just recent, not just in the last few months. That's been going on for several years, and particularly over the last twelve months. Uh, and you know banks have done that proactively as as well as responding to what the regulators have been saying. So what it means is in in the last couple of years, people have been taking on new loans um, in a market that was moving pretty pretty hot. Um, they have been taking them out at lower LVRs, and as a result, um, they are probably um, from a credit assessment point of view um, in a position of of, of, of relative. Uh, 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 being quarantined, if you like, from you know the downside of any sort of uh, significant correction. Uh, but more broadly, um, the, I think the risk that you highlight through the Commission is real, and it's set out in the budget papers, actually. I mean, we say in those budget papers that we have to be careful that uh, any response or uh, to what's occurring there that, could, that leads to um, uh, a, a constraint in credit... Um, which is unreasonable, can hurt the economy. Mm. But before we go too far down that path, let's not forget credit growth is running higher than income growth in Australia at the moment, and that means that we it's hard to say you have a big problem there right now, particularly when you take into the fact that uh, you know, mortgage rates on offer now are about 15 basis points lower, and banks are 
actually out there trying to get customers in that market and are competing on price to do it. So that's good news for customers. So, you know, I'm not I'm not overly troubled at this point, but I, I would say we watch it very carefully. Do, um, there's been some talk of a potential for out-of-cycle uh, rate increases by the banks, given some emerging funding pressures, um, global interest rates rising, mm-hmm. um, so just money getting more expensive uh, at a global level. Mm-hmm. So Australia is relatively well uh, uh, protected against that because of the level of domestic deposits, but... Yes, that's right. Um, but it is a significant component of the pricing factors that for, for, for credit in Australia. Yes, and banks never need much encouragement to put up their prices. Right. <laughs> um, and they'll, they'll take any excuse. I'm sure that's how most consumers feel and mortgage holders. Would it but, concern you if they did at this point? Well, I, I think it would be very hard for them to do that at the moment because of the competition that's there. I mean, at the moment, they've, as I said, they've just cut them by about 15 basis points um, to actually compete for, for, for market. And when you've got the smaller organisations too, who were probably a bit underweight um, when it came to interest only compared to the majors, and you've got the credit um, growth limits taken off them, that gives them an opportunity to respond as well, I would think. So there's a, there's a bit more tension there than, uh, than normal, and that's, that's not a bad thing. Now, what would be the risk of, of banks doing that? Well, you got one of the one of the really positive features of the Australian housing finance market is the fact that we have um, an, an insulation to the, the sort of impacts that you're talking about because we're about to, on average two and a half years ahead of payments on mortgages, and that's how people have largely been significantly saving. They've been keeping ahead of their mortgages. As uh, the rates fell, they kept paying at the same rate, they built up their balances, and so they're, you know, they're a few years ahead on average. Now, there are some people who won't be in that situation, particularly if you've just taken a mortgage, but as I just said, they took those mortgages on lower LVRs and have a bit of a quarantine, at least on the asset side anyway. So um, I think there's a lot of forces there which are protecting. but. You, you're just never complacent about it. Would you get? Would you be concerned if this decline in house prices? At what point would you? Do you think it's time to be a little? Would you start to be exercising a bit more? Paying. You mentioned you're paying attention to it. Mm. When does it start to, to become a real concern for you? We're down. Well, I wouldn't describe it as a real. I, I wouldn't describe. I mean, well, that's four percent in Sydney on average across the city. So where is that mostly happening? It's happening at the high end of the market. In the mid-range market, not so much. Not so much, and in parts of the parts of the city, not not at all. Um, and if you go to Melbourne, for example, where population growth has been strongest, well, it's 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 not going backwards um, overall. Uh, it's fell it's fallen down to two point two percent, but uh, most of that city is actually still going ahead at a pretty healthy rate. So. But, you, but you've got to admit that it is. The prices, according to CoreLogic's data, the prices over the past few months in Melbourne have been falling. In the last month's figures yeah, came out. Yeah, but they've out. gone up. They were, they were growing at double-digit rates for a long period of time. I, I, I completely agree with you. Yeah. The, the, the thing with the, I think we're trying to go and get at is the concern that, yes, house prices have risen a long way, and then now they're suddenly going cool, and it's a tiny decline considering what's happened in the past. Yeah. But you're only as strong as your weakest link. Now, a lot of those people who were buying in that frenzy period in 2006 and 2007, they're now watching their house prices go down in value. They've got quite. You a- mean 2016 and 17, or 2006 7? No, 2016 and 17. Yeah, sorry, I thought you said something. So that's uh, so that's the thing at the moment where I think we're trying to get it because that's yeah, but they that, were bar- they were borrowing at lower LVRs. 
So they have a bit of an asset cushion in, in their borrowing as well. But look, they were buying in a market running at, at very high rates. And I don't, well, I would assume people would not have unwisely entered into that market and, uh, and, and paid over the odds. Um, but if they had, there, there's a bit of an asset cushion for them. Um, but it's, it, it all depends where in the city it is. I mean, there, there's no such thing as the average Australian house price any more than there's, and if you go further, there's no such thing as the average Sydney house price. And in some parts of the city where well, you've I had... I can tell you what it is. It's, it's very expensive. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. But this is the point about all of these property values in Australia is they're real. They're a function of supply and demand. They're not the function of some sort of an investor bubble or some finance bubble as we've seen in other parts of the world, which is, you know, that's why I think often when people look in at the Australian economy, they often misunderstand it because they apply their own housing market and housing finance markets to the Australian situation, and they, it, it pumps out a very different answer. I mean, there's five times assets coverage on Australia's household debt. 80% of the household debt is mortgages, which are well covered on the assets. So yes, it is high, and am I more comfortable that um, uh, real estate prices have moderated? Yeah, I am, so is the, so is the bank. Um, I think that's taken a lot of pressure off how the bank looks at you know the, the general rate settings in the economy. So you're comfortable that this is not an asset bubble? I've, I've never thought it bubble. was. I've never thought it was. Uh, I think it was. Prices have always been fundamentally driven by the supply demand and imbalance, and that's why the fundamental answer to housing affordability, whether it's in Sydney or Melbourne or Darwin or Alice Springs, is 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 about supply. And what what I bemoan is the fact that when house prices, particularly in our major metropolitan markets, started moving it more than a decade ago and more, the supply response took more than a decade. And that's a function of regulation and planning and zoning and uh, a lot of you know, sclerotic um, regulatory systems, which is more responsible for the unaffordability of, of Sydney housing than any other factor. The last time you were on the show, uh, we talked about last year's budget, yeah. um, in which a big part of that was you arguing that there were better days ahead. Mm. Uh, so we got to last month. Um, 415,000 jobs later, um, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, dramatic improvement in the budget bottom line. Mm. Um, the data continues to indicate that that will, will mm. continue to improve. Um, and you talked about that when you were saying there were better days ahead, that you said that this was a codification of an emerging consensus, mm. that the global picture was improving and therefore um, that would add a bit of extra impetus to um, Australian growth, particularly on uh, when it comes to uh, resources, yeah. exports. Um, now, since then, right, things have changed a little bit and increasingly, from my reading of it, if there is an emerging consensus, is that we are now potentially getting to a late point in the global cycle and that at some point, maybe next year, global growth may start slowing. Um, if you were thinking about what the emerging consensus was now and uh, last year in terms of framing a budget, what are you thinking about now? Oh, I think the jury's still out on, on a lot of that. I, I, don't, I wouldn't share the view that you, you just put forward. I, I don't think things are like that. I mean, um, I mean, there are a couple of things going on at the moment, which are significant global risks, what we've seen happening in Italy most significantly. But how that's going to play out, I think it's still a little early to tell. Uh, um, and what's happening you know, with the trade issues that uh, have been well, well ventilated uh, between Europe and the United States and, and other players. 
well, we're still yet to see how that really plays out in practice. What we're pleased about in Australia's case, particularly on that front, we've had a pro um, free trade stance now for some years, which has been our, our inoculation against the impact of these things, uh, both with our trade partners, whether they be in Asia or with the United States, the only country not to get hit by the uh, steel and aluminium tariffs. And there's a good reason for that. We don't put anything on their products. So if we're not the gold standard of what people should be aspiring to, then I'm not quite sure what the point is uh, of all of this. So I think we can be held out as an example of where um, the US would probably like to get to. That's why we see it, the, our arrangement with the US is very much being a win-win, a, a win for them, a win for us. Uh, and so we'll keep going down that path and we'll keep taking on uh, new export trade agreements wherever we can. But the, I mean, I, I'm heading off to the G20 again um, next month, and I'll be in a better position to get a read from how people are feeling around the table then. But when I was last with them only a few months ago, there was there continued to be, I think, a very upbeat assessment of where things were. Now you look a couple of years down the track, two or three years down the track. Uh, well, you know, none of us have got a crystal ball, and there are some so there are some pressures there. But even when you look at them closer to home, like in China, for example. There, I've long said there has been a consistent acknowledgement uh, in China of the risks, particularly around their credit. And I, you know, I think there's been a, a pleas pleasingly surprising transparency about how those issues are being dealt with. And uh, I, you know, I applaud them for that. I think that creates a lot of stability in our part of the world when it comes to the financial system, that uh, people can will know that that's, that's taking place. So yeah, there's risks, but there's always risks. I mean, you know, China's been around for a long time it's, yeah. and, and will. Yeah. <laughs> and we've done very well out of China. Uh, very quickly, a, a feature of your budget has mm. been um, conservative assumptions on yep. growth. Um, we can talk about the wages forecast for a couple of years down the track. Probably best point. not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, look, I'm happy to. Let's talk about them. I mean, the, the, how are they going to get back to uh, the three and a half percent average? The the assessment that's made about this is that the wage price index has a massive impact on the government's revenue forecasts. And it's nonsense. It doesn't. What actually drives the government's revenue forecasts are actually driven more by nominal GDP and compensation of employees and company profits. And so WPI factors into that. Um, but what really factors into it is what's happening in the labour market and employment and what's happening you know, with where we think prices are going. And remember, we've taken a very cautious, very cautious view on prices, particularly when it comes to commodities in our, in our budgets, which is the point you were just making. So, look, people can argue about the WPI being this or that. What they're failing to uh, acknowledge is that even if, even if I were to agree with them, we're not talking about any sort of significant impact on, on what the outlook is at that point anyway. So, uh, you know, apart from being an economist picnic discussion, I, I'm not quite sure, um, you know, of, of its great material uh, relevance. Obviously, but no, with, the, um, with the employment growth, and I completely agree with you, conversation yeah. of employees yeah. is very important. But uh, obviously that was, you've had a huge job, uh, job surge and that's been fantastic and that's mm. obviously delivered a nice windfall to the government. Yeah. But uh, if growth does slow in employment, which you, you sort of flagged at the start of the show, that it's, it's probably like to go and do because you can't sustain that level of increase. But the yeah. labour market's tightening too. But but is the labour market tightening? Well, of course un, it is. The unemployment rate's at 5.6%. Yeah, but the participation rate's going up as well. That's correct. Yeah. But, but, that's, but that's, that's not a sign of tightening per se. You know? Well, I mean, if you go into the IT sector, go into the health sector, go into a lot of these fast-growing sectors, 
And you will find that is absolutely the case. You talk to people who are trying to get people on in some of these skilled occupations and often not so skilled occupations and you'll find that the labour market is tightening. Now, um, that will inevitably have an impact on wages. Of course it will. I mean, the laws of supply and demand haven't been suspended by some sort of government edict. Um, it, they continue to operate there as they do in other markets. What I find interesting about how people commentate on wage prices is how certain they are about what's going to happen in four years' time. I mean, I, I don't think they can be so certain. All I know is at every budget I'm accused of being too optimistic, and when the final budget outcome in comes in, when we've betted it, they say, well, how could you have got it so wrong by being so cautious? Uh, well, I wanted to, you can't have it both ways. <laughs> well, so, so I have been writing for, for years that, yeah. the, the, that, the, that these conservative assumptions have been a feature of your budget and yeah. uh, uh, of your budgets, various budgets, um, uh, including on growth. Um, so, for example, if this level that we saw in them through to the March, to, through in the 12 months, the end of March was maintained, uh, you'd have a pretty decent beat um, over the and next... And a surprise on the upside, in my view. Yeah, well, so this is what I wanted to ask. Like, um, how involved are you in managing those expectations with Treasury? Well, ultimately, it's Treasury's view what the forecasts are. It's, they're their they're numbers. Um, and, but it's my name on the document, <laughs> um, along with Matthias Cormans. And, you know, we obviously discuss these, these matters. Uh, and I'm, I'm not going to sign up on a document where I think that things are, you know, overly optimistic. Uh, and there's a good reason for this. I, I saw what happened during the Swan budgets. I've, I've seen what's happened when governments have overestimated revenue. That's that's bad enough. I mean, that can happen on occasions. I mean, no one's going to um, you know, put him in the freezer because he got the GFC estimate out. I mean, he wasn't Robinson Crusoe on that. Uh, but the real problem is if you overestimate your revenue and then spend it. And that's how we got the debt and deficit. That's how it happened. They consistently pitched revenue higher than it was going to be. I mean, at one price, they 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 locked in 175 US FOB um, iron ore prices forever. And then, oh, it didn't turn up. Really? Yeah. <laughs> but they spent the money. <laughs> they spent the money. And right. people go, how did we get in such a debt and deficit? That's how. Swing and a miss. 175 bucks. Scott, Scott, whoever came up with those other the forecast for the, the, the new forecast of doing uh, commodity prices, they should definitely get a pay rise because uh, <laughs> I think that the, the way that that's uh, that's worked, that's a much more sensible assumption. Well, you just got to put working. a you got to put a reality filter over it, and this is where I think um, John Fraser, as Treasury Secretary, I think has done an a, extraordinary job. I mean. John comes from the markets. He, he, you know, he, he knows what it is to, to live and die uh, by the quality of your assessments and your forecasts. Um, it isn't just some sort of um, academic exercise. It, from his um, background, it's very much the performance of the company you work for uh, and even their own uh, position. So I think John has brought that very practical, real-world view to what Treasury uh, um, estimates are. And that has served us well, but it's it's a partnership. I mean, the treasurer works very closely with their with their department, and uh, I'm very keen to ensure that um, uh, you know you surprise on the upside, and that's the only I think uh, responsible way to do it. And that means well, we'll see what happens at the end of the the seventeen eighteen year. Um, well, you know, we're obviously very much on track for what we said uh, at two and three quarters. Uh, if it's a little better than that, it is. If it's, a, uh, but I think it's unlikely to be less than that, particularly after the figures we've just had. 
Um, so we'll you know, take it as it comes. So maybe we'll get you in uh, uh, for another chat after my EFO and uh, we'll see what the numbers are looking like. One yeah. more question, most importantly. Yeah. Um, so obviously you would have enjoyed um, the Mighty Blues I smashing did. the <laughs> Queenslanders last night. I did. But, but more importantly, are you going to go to Brisbane this weekend to watch the Ireland beat to watch Ireland beat the Wallabies? <laughs> no, sadly, I, I won't be there because I'll be watching my beloved Sharks beat the Tigers uh, down at Shark Park on Sunday afternoon. Um, it should be it should be a great afternoon. The New South Wales treasurer Dominic Perrottet is a big Tigers fan, so it's the clash of the treasurers teams yeah. this uh, this weekend. And uh, but uh, Dom is, I think, I know, very busy putting his own budget together at the moment so I, I doubt I'll be able to get down there uh, but it was a great night last night I mean it was a huge crowd down there in Melbourne I, I was at a local pub in, in Carringbar with a, some friends and and it was great to be there with you know, you know just a whole bunch of locals and we enjoyed the game the Highfields actually it was I've got this great new sports bar there and the, you know it was, it was excellent so everyone had a really good night so you know that's I think that's a great thing about Australia regardless of what's happening um, you know people always have their their other entertainments <laughs> Absolutely. So you enjoy that on the weekend, but I think you'll be disappointed. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I hope so. I'm going to pop this for the next uh, next couple of months as we uh, go through the test series. Yeah, I think if if it's a three if we, if it's a three nil whitewash, either way, we'll be hearing about it going one direction or the or the other for a few months to come. Uh, you've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Here, as always, with David Scott. Great to meet you, and uh, thanks. And our guest on the show this week uh, um, uh, for this special edition, Treasurer Scott Morrison. Thanks for coming on the show, Scott. Thanks. I'm off to buy a ute. (laughs) (laughs) You can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. You can find the podcast under Devils and Details on iTunes or search for it on your uh, preferred podcast provider. We're on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S. We're all on Twitter individually too. David Scott, myself, Paul Colgan, and uh, ScoMo. You can find them easy easy to find on Twitter as well. Uh, The show is produced by Darren Lake. We'll catch you next time.